So uh, last week we started a series called My God is God, and I would call it an apology of Christianity, but it almost seems a little bit too aggressive to be an apology. But we started that last week, and this week we kind of really dig into the, the meat of it. We're starting with the first part of this. It's a book that I kind of started to write that God, I believe, led me to write before Spirit Chapel even was a church uh, to try to get my ideas down on paper, and I didn't know what he was doing at the time, but now I'm kind of catching on. And so this is kind of the theology of Spirit Chapel that we're going through. And we're starting with the most important part first. We're going to start with the two premises of Christianity, my two premises of Christianity, I guess. Uh, first of all, we have to believe in the Bible or we can't go anywhere with a discussion. Second of all, we and this is four weeks from now, but the next part is going to be God's personal. Your walk with God's personal. It's different than my walk with God. I can tell you stories about things God has done in my life. That doesn't mean he's going to do those things in your life. And, you know, if some things happen in my life, you're probably glad. But, um, you know, that's how it works. It's a personal walk with the Lord. And so there's no formula. And there's not one in the Bible. I'm not going to give you one during this. There's no formula you can use to figure out exactly what your life with the Lord's going to look like, except that you know it's going to be different than mine. That's really all we know. We know that our walk is personal. So those are going to be the ter- first two things we deal with. But before we get there, we're walking through the Bible. This is a three-part series on the Bible, and we're starting it today. And today is basically, why is the Bible important? You know, I said it's criti- critical that we have this. Uh, why is it important? Why is the Bible so critically important? Well, when I was uh, growing up, I'm a preacher's kid, so, you know, everything to deal with the church, I've been there, been there, done that. I think we have another preacher's kid here too today. Anybody have a preacher's kid besides Sarah and me? No? You all are so lucky. <laughs> okay, here comes one more. Just walk through the door. Another preacher's kid. But uh, my daughter in the back, you guys, it's hard being a preacher's kid. They've only had it for six years. We grew up with it. There's expectations on a preacher's kid, whether you want them or not. And um, they believe they know things about you. Oh, you're the preacher's kid, you know. And it's like, it was always bad to be the preacher's kid, believe me. But there were times as a preacher's kid that I kind of felt like, I don't know if I belong here um, in church. Not our church, you know, my dad, I kind of was used to his preaching and stuff, but sometimes we'd go around to other preachers. And every now and then I'd hear a preacher say this. Uh, they, they'd be walking around, you know, storming around on, on the church. It was always like, the Bible says this, the Bible says that. It was always the Southern Baptist preachers. And they all sound like they're from the South, even if they're from Pittsburgh. And the Bible says this. They were all imitating Billy Graham. And then all of a sudden they'll stop. They'll get a little misty-eyed, you know. I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, I love this book. And they'll like, like, oh, you finished the sentence for me, sir. I saw it. You heard it too. I love this book. They'll like brandish it. They always have the prop there. I just, I could go without food, I think, but I could not go without this book. I just love this book. And everybody around them is amening. Amen, amen. I'm thinking, really? We're going to um, amen that? Because I'm not feeling that. You know, I was a kid, a teenager sitting in the audience. I'm thinking, if I were to pick one adjective to describe my relationship with the Bible. It wasn't that I love it, is I was frustrated by it. The Bible frustrated me a lot uh, in, in a lot of different ways. At least three different levels of the Bible frustrated me. First of all, I just have to get this out. Um, and this is my chance to be transparent, and you guys get to see who you've been listening to for all this time. But look, there's only probably about four people in the entire Bible who know how to tell a story. I mean, I'm just telling you, the people in the Bible who wrote the Bible, they can't write. They're just, you know, Moses, God bless him, the greatest civil leader of all time, unquestionably, a righteous man. Yeah, Moses was righteous, but that man can't write a story. He just can't. It's boring. I could see giving him Leviticus. Sure, what can you do with Leviticus? Go ahead and give him the law and the names. Give him Leviticus, but why do you give Moses Joseph's story? 
Because Joseph's story is amazing, right? It needed more detail than we get. You know, it's like, man, why, why can't we have better writers write that? And it's not that Jews can't write. You know, Bill Goldman, pretty good writer. You know, the guy who wrote The Princess Bride. We know some Jewish writers who are really, really good. Moses just ain't one of them. Now, David could write. David had the heart of a poet. That man could write. So what I want to know is why doesn't David get to write his own story? The book of David by David, that's a book I want to read. I want to hear what he had to say as he stood against Goliath. What was going through his head? That's a story I want to read, especially in David's hand, because David could write. No, we get Samuel to write that story. And, you know, Samuel makes Moses look like a literary award winner. So, I mean, it's, just, it's frustrating to me because these great stories of the Bible aren't told by great story writers. I'm sorry, I'm making people upset. But that's just how I felt growing up. It's like, this needed more. You know, we needed a punch here. Anyway, the other thing that bothers me about the Bible is the parts that are left out, which may concern some people, but there are some parts left out, and we know that because the Bible tells us. Let me show you this. This is in Chronicles, uh, or this is, I'm sorry, this is 1 Kings. So this is talking about, again, one of the five greatest names in the Bible, Jehoshaphat. What a great name Jehoshaphat is, Jumpin' Jehoshaphat. Uh, so now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, the might that he showed, how he made war, are they not written in the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Well, I don't know. You know, why, why are you referencing it? It's like, uh, th that's something I want to know. The might that Jehoshaphat showed and how he made war. The Art of War by Jumpin' Jehoshaphat would be a great book. I, I'd love to read that, right? So I think, uh, well, Chronicles, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is a Chronicles in my Bible. Let me go over there and see if this is what they're referring to. Now, wait for it, but when you jump over to Chronicles, this is what it says. I'm not making this stuff up. The other events of Jehoshaphat's reign from the beginning to the end are written in the annals of Jehu, the son of Hanai, which are recorded in the book of Kings. So the book of Kings refers me to Chronicles. Chronicles, for, 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 make up your mind. Where am I supposed to look? Well, it turns out neither one of them are referring to each other. They're returning, referring to another book that we don't have a copy of. The book of the kings of Jerusalem, book of kings of Israel, the chronicles of the king, all the really good parts of their <laughs> reigns, you know, about the battles and what they did, they're put in there. If you want to read about them, you can go read that. And now um, a, a theologian and a pastor will tell you, well, the reason you don't have those is because those weren't deemed necessary for your spiritual well-being. Curiosity isn't guaranteed, just a spiritual well-being. That's fine, but it still frustrates me. And there's other things too. Forget the stuff out of the Bible. There's some stuff in the Bible that frustrates me as well. So I'm trying to go through this and, and okay, so I'm going to tell you about this book now that's important to your life after I told you how frustrated I was throughout much of my young life. How in the world can I do that? How can I tell you the Bible's important? In fact, I'm going to tell you it's not just important. It might be the most critically important thing in your life. Not as a Christian, it may be the most important thing in your life, Period. And the reason why I can say that with a straight face and mean it, and I do, is because God's important. It's incredible to me that I have to defend that statement. But it seems like nowadays I have to. I have people who say this to me. This drives me nuts. Well, I don't know if there's a God or not. Well, don't you think you should find out? You know, isn't that kind of something you should maybe find out? Listen, I don't know if you know this. Like we got some youth here. I'm going to give you a secret of life. You may have not heard this, but you probably have. It's not what you know. It's who you know. Well, if it's who you know, God's the greatest who you could know. If there's a God who created heaven and earth and everything in it, he's the most powerful being in the universe, and for some reason he loves you and wants to get to know you, that has to be the most critically important thing in your life, more than anything else you think is important right now. 
I don't know what you're sitting here thinking of. When's he going to shut up so I can leave? Uh, you know, what are the Steelers going to do uh, next year? Uh, what am I going to have for lunch? Whatever you're going through in your mind that this is important to me, this is more important to you. It has to be. It has to be the most important thing in the world. Is there a God? Does a God love you? If so, how can I connect with him? What's the best way of connecting with him? And the reality is the Bible is the best hope you have of knowing God. Now, how do I know that? Uh, well, I could tell you the Bible tells you that, but I can't go there yet. See, this is something else that frustrates me with people. Well, the Bible's real. How do you know? Because the Bible tells me. Do you understand why that circular logic that drives people crazy? It always drove me crazy. That's not, an ex- you know, that's not an argument. You know, the Bible must be real because it says it is. Okay, guess what? The Quran says it's real too. Buddha says his writing's real too. That's nothing you can use. So I'm gonna give you a different reason why you can know that the Bible is critically important. And the reason is because your mind is wired to remember the written word. I don't know if you knew that, but your mind is literally wired to remember the written word. They've done studies. I'm going to give you science here instead of the Bible. They've done studies. They took a group of kids in college, and they watched a lecture. And then a segment of that group would continue to watch that same lecture through a videotape every day. The other group, uh, and they they took no notes. The other group, during the lecture, took notes. And while the one group was watching a videotape of the lecture, the other group had an opportunity to study their notes if they wanted to. Some did, some didn't, and kind of goofed around. At the end of the week, they gave them a test on the lecture. By far and away, the people who took notes outscored the people who watched it several times. Repetition didn't help. Notes did, because your mind is wired. This is something else they discovered, a little tip for those of you going to college. Um, They discovered that handwritten notes are more memorable to you than typed notes. And it's like by a, a factor of 80%. The, because what happens is your, your mind recognizes your handwriting and it says, oh, they wrote this, it must be important, and it remembers it. So the people who scored best on the test by far were the people who took handwritten notes during their lecture and then went home and typed those into the computer, you know, so they actually got the double there. And if they even never looked at the notes again, they outscored the people who watched the lecture over and over and over again because it was just in their mind. Your mind is wired to remember the written word, and it was wired that way by God because God wanted you to remember his written word. There is just something very, very powerful about the written word, and, and you, can't ex- you can't really describe it or explain it, and I think probably one of the greatest things that Instagram, YouTube, and everything else is hurting is that we're taking the word away from people and replacing it with images and videos. In my life, I've had many people tell me that a, that a book changed their lives. That used to be a thing. I don't think it is anymore, but it used to be a thing. Not always the Bible, because usually people wouldn't want to go there. It was too trite, you know. But that used to be a common question that interviewers would ask celebrities. I mean, not anymore. <laughs> they don't read books. They read tweets. But, you know, it used to be people read things, and they asked what, and they would always have, and sometimes it was interesting, what book changed their lives? Oh, this one really was memorable to me. And they'll tell you about it. And it stuck with them. I don't know anybody who's ever told me of a Snapchat that changed their lives. You know, unless it got published and it shouldn't have or something, maybe. But, you know, th- I don't know of anybody who has these moments of these images that did anything to change their lives. But the written word does. It, we are wired to do that. And the reason we're wired to do that is because God wants us to know who he is. And he wants us. He tells us throughout the entire Bible. He says, read my word. He, he actually says, that stick it on your forehead. He says, write down, stick it on your forehead. That way, I, don't, I can't read it there. But, you know, stick it on your forehead that you never lose it. Put it on your doorposts. Everywhere you go, you want to be able to see my word because that'll stick with you long after the images 
are gone. Victoria and I met, uh, a lot of people ask us these questions, but we met online first. We had an argument about this. She says we didn't meet online, but we, we, we communicated online. Uh, and so we were writing back and forth, and that was great. And then I went to see her, which was better. And we spent this little bit of a week together in Kiev, which is a really great city. What made it terrific was the, the power of the dollar at the time. I was like rich in Kiev. It was great. We went to the best restaurant there, French restaurant, 35 bucks with tip. I was like, oh, man, I am like king here. And so uh, we had a great time. I took some pictures, and we remember a lot of the details of that week. But the reason you remember is when I went home, I took my little journal that I had been keeping, and I typed them all up. And every so often, not every year, but probably this year as well, on our anniversary, I take that thing out. It was about, about 10, 12 pages. And I read it, and we remember the moments. We couldn't do that with pictures. As much as you want to remember the pictures, it's not the same. It's the words attached to the pictures that reminds us where we were at that time. And the written word is so incredibly powerful, and that's why the Bible has to be important. If it's God's word, it has to be important because it's written down, and the written word can't change. It's funny, I, I was talking to Rick Saccone because he was here last night, but... Um, Sometimes I'll be preaching and I'll see people reach for the Bible. That never offends me, by the way. Feel free. Um, they'll reach for the Bible. He does it a lot. And he told me once, he says, I want you to know I'm not challenging you. It's just I swore I, swore I just read that and didn't say that. Yeah, the Bible will do that to you. If it weren't written down, you'd swear it was changing, you know, because there's something you read a hundred times that didn't mean anything. And all of a sudden, wow, didn't even know that was there. That's how the Bible works. It isn't like any other book, which is part of the reason why it frustrates me when I try to treat it like another book. We'll get that in week three. But Jesus says this uh, in John. He says, look, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. So this is an incredible promise. Eternal life, they're mine. Nobody can take them from me. I've got them. But it all starts by hearing the voice and knowing it. Now, we don't know what it's like to see a shepherd, but I don't know if you've ever seen this. You'll maybe see this in movies. But what would happen was the shepherds would take their sheep, and there was a fountain at the front of the city. We talked about the fountain of Bethlehem a couple weeks ago. And they would give the sheep water, because this is a big it, and then they're out. And they're, they're going out. And the, and the shepherd would have a whistle that he'd whistle to the sheep, and then he'd, he'd give them command, follow, whatever their command was. And usually a couple of sheep were real good about it, and everybody else would follow the sheep that were real good about it. And they'd, they'd you know, single file line practically out of the city up to where the pasture was. And they'd be there for a while until the shepherd realized the pasture was getting eaten up and he'd call them again and they'd go to the next place and they'd follow them. If a sheep didn't know that voice when it heard meant I need to follow, it would get separated from the flock. And it's really, really easy for a shepherd, a sheep who gets separated from the flock to become wolf food real fast or lion food. You don't want to get separated. And the reason you don't, the way you don't get separated is you know when you hear the voice to move on, it got up and moved on. But here's my question. How in the world do we know God's voice if we never spend a time with his word? How can we possibly know that? If you haven't spent time, someone says, well, God says this. And you go, okay, guess he does. And, and, and if you really knew his word, you go, well, that doesn't sound like God. But you don't know if you don't know his word. I, I meet Christians who say, I wish God would speak to me. And they'll go, they'll go, you know, all gonzo on me. I wish God would appear from sky right here in front of me and tell me what to do. And if he would do that, I would do it. Well, how about you just open up a book that he gave you, like, you know, a thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, and it's been there that whole time, and you haven't cracked it. How, how about that? No, that sounds way too hard. I want him to appear as an angel. 
You know, that, that'd be cool. But how would you even know if it was him? What would you, has anybody ever seen an angel? Would you know an angel if you saw one? It's bright and shiny. There's a, there's a, there's a train coming at you. You know I mean? It's like, well, how do you know that that's, that's what that is? So, you know, we need to know God's word in order to know his voice, because that's how we get to know his voice. There's a certain part of God that comes through in his, his written word. Same as you. If you wrote a journal and kept a journal, someone could read that and they'd know you pretty well from the journal. If you're honest, which God is. So I'm going to give you a little history lesson now about the Bible, and then we're going to finish up here. But I want you to understand the Bible and how it's put together and why it was put together. And this is, like I said, history. And I'm giving you this because right now there's a lot of bad information on YouTube. Where YouTube became like the Oracle of Delphi that has all the answers is beyond me. But you can, like, believe nothing there. Just tell, me, tell you nothing. There's all kind of really bad stuff there. So let me go through a couple things and let me correct some historical inaccuracies you may have heard. So the Bible's made up of 66, we call them books. They're like sections of the Bible, but it's made up of 66 of them. The, the Old Testament, which is the first section, the big section, is 39 of them, which is like almost two-thirds. And the New Testament is, is a small part. Now, Old Testament, New Testament, those are our names. God doesn't call it that. He just hears scripture. But we broke them down because we like to we got to you know, organize things. We're very good at that. We organize things. If you look at the original scripture, you'd see no chapters, no verses, no punctuation. <laughs> it just goes from one verse straight to the next. Actually, it goes this way because it's backwards, Hebrew, right to left. And it's just like they stopped because it, it was so precious. The scrolls were so precious. They wouldn't do anything. They're just like, okay, they just put a slash and start the next book of the Bible. And here comes, you know, Isaiah. Is they would just do that. And reading it's like, whew. And so the poor monks who were, who were charged for scribing it thought that it's just so easy to lose your place. We need to do something. So they started coming up with this idea. They came up with the idea of chapters and verses for their own sanity. So uh, anyway, so the Old Testament, 39 books. It was written in Hebrew originally because it kind of mostly tells a story of Israel and its relationship with God. Mostly. First part of Genesis tells the beginning of the world. But then it breaks when it gets to the guy named Abraham. And from there on in, it tells a story of God and Israel. Why? Well, there's two reasons why. First of all, we are Israel. You have to know that. If you read the Old Testament, you know, and you kind of get back a little bit from it, th the way they act is the way we act. It's the same. It just shows you human nature hasn't changed in 4,000 years. It's the same. The other thing was God had this idea. When, he was, when, when the people were going off and living horrible lives, he said, I'm going to show the world that they should be close to me. And so I'm going to take one group of people, the Israelites, and uh, they, weren't, they didn't exist yet. He's going to you know, bless one family. They're going to have this great nation. And they're going to worship me. I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. And I'm going to show the rest of the world what it's like to be my people. So they're going to be the shining example of what it's like when you live by God. Unfortunately, the Israelites didn't keep up their part of the bargain. They're always wandering away, and he's always bringing them back. And so he really never gets to show them exactly. Moments he gets to show them. But they never really are very good examples. Uh, that'll eventually, that whole thing there gets passed to us in the New Testament. We'll get to that. But what happens because the Israelites wander away a lot, um, because when things go well, we don't think we need God. That's the reality. You know, people say, oh, you know, my hard times, you know, that I might lose my faith. Don't worry about the hard times making you lose your faith. Hard times will drive you closer to God. It's the good times that will make you lose your faith. Everything's going fine. I'm cool, God. I'll talk to you later. That's usually what happens. You know, when people have left the church 
It's always after they say, hey, pastor, I have great news. Oh, boy, this person's gone in a month. I can just tell it already, you know. Great news is never good news for God because now I got my job. Now I got married. Now I got my house. Now I got my new whatever. And then, poop, they're gone. It's always that way. You know, it's the good stuff that draws us away from God, not usually the bad stuff. So anyway, um, what happened was the Israelites got drawn away, and uh, they get conquered by other nations because they lost their protection. And they get scattered all over the world. And so what happens is... Uh, over a period of time, they stop speaking their own language. In fact, by about the book of Nehemiah in the Bible, the Israelites no longer spoke Hebrew. They spoke Greek, because Greek was the predominant language of the day, thanks to Alexander the Conqueror. And so by the time Nehemiah gets around, they, the, the rabbis and priests who still study the old language was trying to read to the, old people, to the people in the old language, and people said, we don't know what you're saying. We don't understand Hebrew. So um, the the temple in Jerusalem, which was kind of the sun center of, of Israel, uh, said, you know, what we need to do is we need to translate the Old Testament into Greek. That's what we're going to have to do. So they did. They translated it, and they translated something that some of you may, if you went to CCD class and paid attention or vacation Bible school, you may have heard of, called the Septuagint. And all that is is the, is the Hebrew tra Hebrews translated the Old Testament into Greek. That's all it is, from Genesis all the way up, all 40-some books, 39 books of them. So they translated it in Greek. Now that was so important, they made a copy of it, and they started sending it to other temples in the conquered region. And what happens is the people go, oh, this is really great. But they added things to it. You know what's missing? There was a story somebody wrote about this, and they translated that and stuck it in and moved it on. So by the time this gets up to Rome and Egypt, they've got all kind of stuff added to it that wasn't part of the original uh, Old Testament. This will eventually become a group of books we know as the Apocrypha, added to the Old Testament. And we'll get to that in a second. But in the Old Testament, we have this thing called the Old Covenant. Those aren't the same thing. The covenant is a contract with God. That's what a covenant is. It's a contract between you and God or between God and someone. That's what a covenant is. And he comes to a man named Abraham, and he says, look, I'm going to make a covenant with you. He says this in Genesis. He says, by myself I've sworn, because there's nothing higher he can swear, I will bless you, I will multiply your offspring. He has no children yet, by the way. He's talking to a fatherless guy who's 100 years old. He says, here's a promise. You're going to have offspring. There's going to be so many of them. They're going to be like the sand of the sea. And I will, I will also, in from your offspring, I'll take all the nations, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. He's so thrilled that Abraham is following him. He said, I'm going to bless the entire world through your offspring. Jesus Christ will come from here. So that, God always keeps his, his side of the covenant, always. Unfortunately, the Israelites did not. And eventually the Jews uh, will get conquered and, and they will not come back from the conquering because God says it's time for the new covenant. That'll come next. So now we turn our attention. Oh, I want to talk real quick because this is amazing. The Old Testament is written over a couple thousand years. We don't know how many. It depends on where you count the, the starting date. But it could be 1,000 to 4,000 years. We're not exactly sure how long it took to write the Old Testament. Uh, we don't even know how many authors there are. There's 39 books. You'd think there'd be 39 authors, but Moses wrote five of them. Uh, so we don't know. We don't know who wrote Job at all. Um, Samuel dies in 1 Samuel, and there's still a 2 Samuel, so we know he didn't write 2 Samuel. You know, so there's, we don't know all the authors of the books. But, but here's the thing. There's probably, I don't know, 20 to 40 authors of the book of the Old Testament. They're from all over the country, from all over countries, all over the world. And they're over a span of time of at least 1,000 years. And yet the story they tell is consistent. That's astounding. 
That's just a style. Have you ever listened to a, a football game radio on Monday morning? You know, they turn on one of the sports stations after the Steelers lose, especially. You can't get 12 callers to agree on what happened in the game yesterday. Here we're talking about, you know, 40 writers over a thousand years all agreeing on what happened in this, you know, in this nation. It's, it's just really astounding. So that's the Old Testament. Now we have the New Testament. That's the rest of 27 books. This, un unlike the Old Testament, is written in about one generation, really fast. The whole thing was written in Greek because by that time, Greek was the language. There are four Gospels. There are one book we call the Acts, which we just did a study on, 21 letters, and there's this other book called the Book of Revelation. That's it. That's the New Testament. It was written in a space of about 40 years or so. Okay, so um, you may have heard, I don't know if you've heard this, why in the world would you believe in a book and call it sacred when it didn't even exist for 350 years after Jesus died? I don't know if you've ever heard that. The Bible didn't even exist. And in fact, the only reason the Bible was put together is a group of men got together to decide what was in who it wasn't. And you're calling that a holy book. How in the world can you do that? How can you believe that this Bible that was assembled by a committee, and boy, I get you, man. I don't believe in committees. I've never <laughs> seen a holy committee yet. But assembled by a committee, they call them a council, but they're a committee. How can you believe that that is the inspired word of God? A bunch of men put it together from stuff that was floating around. Well, that's not true. Actually, as it turns out, we know that's not true because we have historical evidence that the New Testament started as soon as Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. They started writing. The New now, they didn't know they were writing the New Testament, but they were writing the New Testament. And uh, so I'm going to get into that, but a little bit more about how that goes together. But we know this because of a guy named Justin Martyr. Now, that'd be a very unfortunate last name if that were his real last name. Uh, as it turns out, they gave him that last name after he was martyred. <clears throat> but uh, so he's a Roman philosopher. Now, Roman philosophers, just in case you didn't know, come from money because no one pays anybody to be a philosopher. That means he was rich. Uh, he had family money. And uh, he spent 70 years of his life looking for this, the meaning of life because you know, this is what you do when you're rich and you got nothing else to do. And I'm a philosopher. Um, anyway, so I, I've met philosophers in my life. Usually they're, they're drunk and they're still in college. But uh, anyway, so he's a, he's a philosopher, and, he's, and, he's, he's, uh, he's been, and he finds Christianity one day. And he realizes, this is what I've been searching for my whole life. And he becomes this big proponent of Christianity. And he writes this book, and it's called The First Apology to Emperor Antonius Pius. Now, it's a big title. The word apology to us means, you know, I step on somebody's foot and I say, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry. That's an apology. But that's not what the word apology means in Greek. That means I'm explaining myself. I'm explaining the belief of myself. So I'm going to explain the belief of Christianity to the emperor Antonio Pius. The reason he wrote this is because Christianity was being persecuted by the Roman church, and he didn't think it was right. Of course, he thought that before he was a Christian. When he became a Christian, it was really not right. Uh, but what happened was Rome had a law that they said, enough, no new religions, no more. Any existing religion can stay. No more new religions. And at first, Christianity was treated as a sect of Judaism. They said, okay, you can stay. And then they started coming up with their own books and their own services. And they said, whoa, 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 that's a new religion. And they were actually killing people if they had these books in their, in their possession. They actually they have started. And, of course, there are other emperors that went much further with that. You know, we've heard about the persecution of the Jews. So he's trying to convince them. You don't have to worry about it. And the reason Rome was like that is because a lot of times religion turned into rebellion. And, and the Christians were growing fast. It was scaring them. Because, man, if they ever got all the Christians united in an army, 
It'd be worse than Spartacus. It'd be awful, which, of course, Christians would never do because, for one thing, we can't agree on anything. But, you know, they would never do that. And he was, this is why he writes the book. He's trying to tell them, look, you don't have to worry about us like that. That's not what we're about. And he writes this book, and there's this chapter in it, which amazed me I'd never heard of before, uh, where he describes what worship was like in the church. Now, this is only... 100 years or so after Jesus. Now, A.D. doesn't mean after death, by the way. Don't make that mistake. I always thought that A.D., B.C. before Christ, A.D. after death. No, because there'd be 33 years missing in history then. A.D. means in the year of the Lord. It's a Latin term. And so it starts as soon as Jesus was born, right? So this is, so you need to take 33 years off of that because Jesus lived 33 years to see about when this was. So it's a little bit over 100 years after Jesus came. He's going to describe what the church service looked like in the church. Now, in ancient history terms, you know, 100 years, that's the batting of a gnat's eyelash. That's no time at all, really. So this is going to be pretty current. This is almost exactly what we would have seen if somebody would have been there to record the service in the book of Acts, which is cool to me because I always like, I'd love to know what that service looked like. Well, here's what it looked like. On the day called Sunday, which is interesting, they've already moved to Sunday instead of Sabbath, Saturdays. They've already made the move. This was a very practical reason, by the way, they couldn't get into the temples on Saturday. When they had a whole, you know, at first they did start out as part of the Jewish, you know, thing. When they realized they needed their own and they wanted a place to worship, they couldn't get in there on Saturday, so they moved to Sunday. So they, they moved there. It's a very practical reason for that. So on Sunday, there's a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district. So everybody kind of gathers up in this one area. The memoirs of the apostles, I'm going to come back to that, or the writings of the prophets, that'd be the Old Testament, are read as long as time permits. So they read for a long, long, longer than I do, guys, for as long as time permits. And then when the reader ceases, the president, that would be me, the president, because they didn't call them priests, they want to call them rabbis. You just, what are you? You're not a preacher, that's the pastor, that gets, that gets created later, right? What are you? I'm the president, I'm the head of this organization, that's what he is. The president gives a speech where he admonishes and urges imitation of the good things. It's kind of what I do, right? Hey, this is the good stuff in the Bible. You need to kind of follow along with that. That's what he does. Next, we all rise together and send up prayers. Man, I want to try that. So let's all start praying. And it doesn't seem like we rise up the same prayers. It seems like we're all praying different prayers at the same time. That would just, can you imagine? People would be out of here. They're getting nuts in there. We just all stand up and start praying. It'd be great, by the way, if everybody would do it. But I'd be that guy still praying when everybody else stopped, you know, and you'd hear what my prayer was. That'd be awful. But so then when we cease from our prayer, bread's presented with wine and water. Water be for the kids, wine for the adults. Bread and wine. So already they have changed Passover into what we know as the elements of communion. When this started off, and we know this, uh, that what used to be a full meal. When, when the apostles started it, they always had a full meal and ended with a Seder meal. And we know that because there were some Jews getting, Jewish Christians getting drunk, and Paul had to tell them to stop it. <laughs> so, so he actually writes that in one of his letters. Please stop getting drunk at our communion meals, you know, at our Passover. You've got to stop that. So by this time, that has changed. It's just simply what we know is the wine and communion elements, the wine and the bread, right? And so um, the same manner, uh, so the president in the same manner sends up prayers and thanksgivings. I love it. According to his ability, <laughs> some can, some can't, you know, so whatever. Some, some presents just no good. And the people sing out their assents. There's your worship. And they end it with amen. And then the distribution and participation of the elements, that'd be communion every week for which thanks have been given is made to each person. And those who aren't there, the elders will, and the deacons will take to them. That was church in 100 B.C. Pretty remarkable. There are some things there that kind of falls along with us. There are some things we're missing. 
We don't have enough prayer in this church during church service. Stick a pin in that. We're going to come back to that when this is all over because we're going to add it. Because I've always been saying we need to have more authentic. We need to do that. I'd love to add meals after church too, but you know, one thing at a time, one step at a time. I want to stay married, so that's one step at a time on that one. All right. But I want to come back to this idea of the memoirs of the apostles. What were the memoirs of the apostles? Well, that were the letters, and that was also the gospels they had written. They had already written them down, and they had sent them around, and they had them. How they get them? Well, they had the New Testament lending library program going on. And we know that because we see this in Colossians. We see Paul talk about this. He said, now when this epistle, that's a letter, is read among you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodosians. So go, read, go read it there. And they've got one for you. So switch letters. I'm not writing the same letter twice. I'm going to write one letter to them, one letter to you, switch. Now whatever happened to this letter, I don't know. Laodosians must be really bad at keeping things and we've lost it. We don't know what this letter is. It's just gone. But we still have the Colossians, thank God. So what they would actually do is oftentimes, if it was really inspiring, well, we're not letting this out. <laughs> Those Laodosians, they'll lose it. So they'll make a copy of it, and they keep it. And they, send, they send the, keep the original, they send the copy out. And this would happen if there's, a, there's an inspiring letter, they would copy it, and they would send out the, the copy, and they'd keep the real letter. And they'd send it to every other church, and it would, they would happen, they'd copy it, copy it, copy it. If you heard there's translation errors in the Bible, this is when it happened. Somebody wrote something down a little bit different. They didn't, you know, dot an I or put a squiggle here. It had a different slight meaning, but that's all there is. There's nothing, believe me, there's nothing in any, if you study what the quote-unquote inconsistencies of the Bible are, they're so small, you're like, man, what's people getting upset about this for? There's nothing about the theology or the teaching of the church, nothing. But sometimes there are translation errors, you know, they, you know writing errors. <laughs> like if I wrote, you know, people are like, what's this guy's handwriting? I can't read this. That'd be mine, you know. I'd probably be a Laodicean. And it's like, well, that's what happened. Mark wrote it. Nobody knows. So this is what happened. So you kind of have this unofficial thing of this grouping of, the, of the, what they're calling the memoirs of the apostles. And then you had the Greek scriptures of, of the prophets. And that was the new church's Bible. And that's what they used. And it worked for many years. But there's a problem because there was no structure. Now, we like freedom. We don't like structure. I get that. But there's a problem with no structure. It leaves you vulnerable to people who come with fake teaching. And there's this guy, uh, this isn't really his picture, but um, Marcion, and he was actually from the Black Sea, and he was a very, very wealthy merchant. And he came over, and he discovered Christianity. He says, well, he was like looking through the documents of one of the churches, their little hand-bound book. He says, this isn't right. The only thing we need to care about is what Jesus said and what Paul said. I don't know why. That's what he decided. He said, well, we'll keep this stuff for... He, had, he found like eight letters to, from Peter. And he says, these eight letters of Peter and these like, like 10 letters of Paul, a bunch of them. And this part of Luke's gospel is all that matters. But because he was rich, he actually paid to have that published in a book, which was very expensive back then. And he started handing it out as a Martian New Testament. And people said, well, this must be official because this is a book. And so, uh, yeah, this must be right. And like the church is saying, no, <laughs> that's not right. But this has started winning the day because it was a book. I mean, it wasn't like a bestseller that you had thousands and thousands of copies, but there were enough of them. And they're like, well, this must be right. Right about the time that they're fighting off that, this other guy shows up. Just quick question. Does anybody know who those people are? Anybody? No? Okay. Don't say it because you're dating yourself. Okay. Um, they're, they're not really. I'm just trying to find pictures, right? So, uh, so this guy shows up. His name is Montanus, and he has two priestesses with him. I guess the dan ba ba you know, backup dancers. 
uh, and they're, they're priestesses, and he's this new prophet guy. And there must have been some kind of a service because they threw out all the Bible. We got the Holy Spirit. We don't need it. Let's just get together and let's have this great service. We'll worship and we'll have a good time and we'll dance. And uh, we have music that has a beat to it and it'll be great, right? And they're saying, that's all you need. You don't even need any of this scripture stuff. It's old fashioned. We don't need it at all. And the church realized we have a problem here. And so they responded with something called a canon. It's actually spelled differently than this, and it is different than this. They didn't respond with a real canon. Don't panic. <laughs> Church springs them out and blows them away. No, a canon, C-A-N-O-N, which is the Latin word for inspired by God. And they said, we need to come up, we need to go through this, and we need to come up with an official list of what we recognize as Scripture. And so they did. And uh, now, by this time, there's little groups of Christianity all over the world, really, and every time, you know, the apostles went and found a church, other churches would spring up around it. And at the head of all those, there'd be a guy who'd get elected to kind of manage all the churches and kind of make sure all the letters get around and everything. And he was called the bishop. He was the head of these little churches. And so there was a bishop in Carthage who said, I'll take this on. I'll assemble a team and we will decide what is and what isn't scripture. And so the council of Carthage was formed. By the way, just moment of history here for you. Uh, there was no Roman Catholic Church at this time. So where a Roman Catholic Church decides that their first uh, pope is Peter is beyond me. You'd have to explain it to me. But there is no Roman Catholic Church yet. Anyway, so the Council of Carthage meets, and they decided, okay, uh, how are we going to do this? That's a good question, because stuff has filtered into now, because his letters get sent on. Some people send letters that weren't from Paul. They assign his name to it. How do we know what's real and what's not? And they said, well, let's start with Jesus. Pretty good. Let's start with Jesus. We're Christians. We believe Jesus. Let's start with Jesus. Okay? So whatever Jesus said is true. Well, what do we know about Jesus? Well, we only know what people wrote about him because Jesus didn't write anything down. He was the word, right? So he didn't write anything down. Okay, well, who can we trust? Because a lot of stuff is floating around about Jesus too. They said, we can trust the eyewitnesses. Anybody who was an eyewitness and we know is an eyewitness counts. Matthew, he was a disciple. He's in. Mark, Mark was actually the translator, the Greek translator for Peter. So the gospel according to Mark is really the gospel according to Peter as told to Mark. He's in. That's a first eyewitness. Uh, Luke, we're going to let him in because even though he wasn't an eyewitness, he traveled with John and Paul. So we know he's, he's reliable. He was well known actually. And then there's John. He's, he's an apostle. He's in. So that's what we have. Okay, well, if we're going to accept that, then any letter we know is written by Peter's in. Any letters written by Paul's in because Peter says it's scripture, so he's in. We got James, which is Jesus' brother. That makes it. Jude is James' brother, which makes him Jesus' brother, so that makes it. And that book, Revelation, that's hard for us to understand, that makes it too because it's written by John. And that's how your New Testament got put together, right? And they only looked at, they went from Jesus and worked their way out. And then they said, okay, now we got to look at the Septuagint. Because there's a bunch of there that we d we, we're just kind of inheriting from other places like Rome and Egypt and things. What can we do about that? And they said, well, Jesus and the apostles reference Old Testament scriptures. We will only recognize what they recognized. And so they went through and everything that's quoted by Jesus and the apostles get pulled into the Old Testament officially. Everything that isn't gets stuck in this book we call the Apocrypha, which means hidden. And that's how you get your Bible, folks. And the reason we don't recognize the Apocrypha, and the Roman Catholic Church does, is because that was part of their Septuagint, but it was never quoted by Jesus or the apostles. 
so it's not authentic. But here's the thing that hit me as I was looking at this, because I always come in a little bit where, you know, counts put your church together. No, they didn't. You know who put your, who put your Bible together? Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ walked the earth in the full power of the Holy Spirit. He had the gift of prophecy. He had the gift of the word, word of wisdom, word of knowledge. He knew what was going to happen in 397 AD. And he knew all he had to do to get that scripture included was to quote it in one of his sermons. Because if you look at what Jesus does, he pulls scriptures from amazing places. Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Psalms, Proverbs. He pulls them out. And he doesn't need to. He could say to Isaiah the whole time. Almost every point he made was in Isaiah. Isaiah is the one who proclaimed him the Messiah. Maybe Isaiah and Deuteronomy. You don't need to go beyond there for any of his sermons, really honestly. He almost makes a stretch sometimes to pull in scriptures that aren't really what he's talking about. I always wondered about that because I thought, you know, I, don't know. I don't know the Bible as well as Jesus, but I think I could have found a better scripture for his point. I don't think he was trying to make his point. I think he's trying to make sure that book of the Bible got in our Bible. Jesus was editing. Listen, he wrote the New Testament with his actions, and he decided the Old Testament with his words. He was walking around preaching and curating your Bible at the same time. I really believe that because Jesus is just that cool. (laughs) He was walking around doing that because he had that. He, He knew that. And so he gathers his book up that he knew would make it to us of the things that matter to us spiritually, that describe him and describe his Father and the Holy Spirit and describe the relationship we are supposed to have with him. He put him in there. And it's put in there together in balance. You can't take out part of it. If Jesus didn't think he needed the Old Testament, he wouldn't have quoted it. But he thinks we do. He thinks every book that we have in our Old Testament, even the books that don't make any sense to us, are there for a reason and we need them. And one thing, and we'll talk about this a lot more in the next couple of weeks, the Bible has to be taken in balance. When you start taking part of it out, you lose it. And I can tell you why real easily. Because the Bible is part of the covenant. The covenant of God, his promise to you, his covenant, which Jesus comes and says, I'm giving you a new covenant. He says, I'm giving you a new covenant, but he doesn't let us off from the scriptures. He says, he says this who believed him, if you continue in my word, then you're a disciple of mine. And the new covenant he offers is to his new disciples. And the night he betrayed, he takes the cup, I'm offering you a new covenant. A covenant is a contract. I have an attorney sitting over here. He can vouch for me. If you take a contract and you cross out lines of the contract and sign it, it's not valid. The person who offers you a contract, this is how it works. Does, some of you have been through this. They give you a contract and they've, they've signed it. Here, just sign this contract and it's binding. And you look at it and you say, oh, this contract's okay, but I can't do this and this. So you scratch them out and then usually you initial them. And then you sign it. And then that person has to take that back and say, okay, I can accept that and also initial it. Jesus Christ won't do that. That covenant is signed in blood by Jesus Christ. If you cross out one line, it is no longer valid. That's why you need the whole Bible. Because that's part of the covenant. So Jesus Christ says, look, I'm giving you a covenant. And I'm giving you my word, which can tell you how faithful I am. And I've been faithful forever how much I love you and how I want you to relate with me. That's the contract. And I will bless you and I will take you with me forever. And we say, okay, but I want to cross this out. And he's saying, no. The Bible is what I wanted you to have and that's what you have. And the stuff you don't understand is just because you don't understand it. Are you going to trust me on that or not? 
are you willing to do what's necessary in order to understand the Bible? Because we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. If you just read like a regular book, you're going to be disappointed. It's not. When you understand it's not, it's, you have a whole different kind of relationship with it. But you know, like I said, we'll get to that. But I just want to just end with a story, and I'm a little over time, but I want to end with a story because I want to talk to you about the importance of communication with somebody you love. The Bible, by the way, is the way God talks to you. You may speak with prayer. Sometimes he like, you know, you, your spirit will sense something. But unless God sends an angel, the way he speaks to you is through his word. And if you're not reading it, you're not hearing it. You're not speaking with God. You're, you're, you're talking at God. You know, have you ever had that situation where you try to talk with somebody and they're simply talking at you instead? Frustrating, isn't it? Welcome to God's world. You know, we, we have these prayers with basically his to-do list for the day, and then we hang up. When, uh, when Stas went off to basic training, uh, he, he went off to Fort Leonard Wood, and we kind of conceptually knew it was going to be hard for him, but that was okay for us because we weren't going through it. Conceptually, we knew. We also conceptually knew he was going to get through it. That's what everybody told us. It's really hard, but you get through it. And so we thought, okay, we, you know, that's the deal. He's going to go off, and he's going to go through this hard time, and he's going to come back a better person. That's what everybody always told us. And so you kind of live with that. But then the day comes when he leaves. And you know, Victoria had him at a very young age, which is why she still looks so young. And, uh, you know, they've been together forever, it seems. And when they came to this country, it was like they, were, they shared a foxhole together because they came here and no one else spoke their language but them. You know, it was them against the world kind of thing. So they have a, a relationship that goes deeper than just what a typical mother-son relationship goes through. They have, you know, their mother-son, but also foxhole partners. You know, they've been through the war together. And now all of a sudden, for the first time in her life, he's gone. And we won't hear from him. We, we get a phone call from him on Monday. The plane arrives, he's there. And he's talking. You can hear a bunch of yelling in the background. He's talking. So they're getting ready to take the phone. I want to let you know you won't hear from me again until Sunday. Boom, it's taken from him. That's it. Hang up. Army doesn't care. You know, your family did not come with your duffel bag. We don't care. Take it away from you. So that's the army for you. And so we won't hear from him again now until Sunday. It's Monday. All right, so now we know we're going to hear from him Sunday, but we don't know when. And making everything worse is Victoria has this crappy cell phone. She always does. She always has the worst cell phone in the family. And we have very good service. So we literally would go around and check where we had bars on her cell phone, you know, because we were invited to a little sing thing up, uh, sing and praise up at Triple B Farm. That's up in Forward Township. You know, that's kind of out in the boonies. So we drove up there that week to check to make sure she'd have cell phone coverage there and where she'd have cell phone coverage. And we knew where we had to sit. You know, we got there early, and she had she charged that crappy cell phone all night. You know, she turned it off, make sure it was fully charged. She has it in her hand, and she does not put that on silent. She has it turned up as loud as it goes. And we're sitting there in the praise festival, and I can look over it because it was this red cell phone. I can see it in her hands. And then the phone rings. And she gets up, and she runs a little bit back where she knew she had the best coverage. <laughs> so she goes back there, and she talks to him very briefly. And he kind of tells her, I'm okay. I'm really hungry, which really bothers her. She doesn't like to see her son being hungry. Uh, but it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm all right. You know, it was a tough first week, but I'm okay. But I need to tell you, we may not speak every week. Because whether I get my cell phone is dependent upon how well the unit performs that week. Somebody goofs off, none of us get cell phone. So I may talk to you or I may not. Like, and then I was supposed to have a chance to talk to him, but he didn't get much more in a minute, minute and a half, and he had to go. And so now for the next week, we know that following Sunday, maybe he'll, she'll hear from him. Maybe she won't. 
But she did everything she could on her side to make sure that cell phone was ready to get that call if it should come. That's what you do when you're waiting to hear from someone you love. Do you love God or not? Are you willing to do the necessary work to be ready to hear from God when he's speaking to you? I can't guarantee you hear it every Sunday. You got a preacher who's a little spotty. <laughs> you may not hear it every Sunday. But I can guarantee you God wants to speak to you. I can guarantee he's going to use his word to do it. And that's why we have to treat it like it should be treated as his word and how we get to know him. Would you all please pray with me?